you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. I trust you're having a great week. You know, this has been Thanksgiving week as I'm recording this. Time to be grateful for lots of things that we have around us. Sometimes we overlook the things that seem to be most common and are ungrateful for them. You need to run into somebody, perhaps, who doesn't have some of the things that we take for granted. Do a little traveling. See people around the world who would be very grateful for the kind of lives that we live. Well, we've got a lot of questions to cover this week, as always. Holidays come and go, but our lives just continue anyway, don't they? So this is the time to be planning for the upcoming new year. It's a great time to be planning. As a matter of fact, right now during Thanksgiving time is when you ought to have clarity about what you want 2012 to look like. Decide in advance what kind of year you're going to have. Don't just review your life looking in the rearview mirror. I mean, that's pretty common. People just simply are always looking back at what happened, feeling like they're a victim of circumstances. No, as soon as you decide what you want your life to be, you put yourself in the driver's seat and you can predict in advance what your life is going to be. And we really can. We, it's pretty easy to show that people end up pretty much where they expect to end up. So you determine where you expect to end up and somehow doors just start opening in that direction, whether good or bad. So either way, I mean, Shakespeare told us that, you know, there's not good or bad, except our thinking makes it so. Well, here's some of the questions that we're going to be covering today. How can I get a job when I don't want to promote my recent college degree? Well, that's a common malady. We'll cover that. Dan, when asked what position he wanted with the Kansas City Royals, my brother said second base. Now, here's a guy who was just applying. He just wanted to be part of the team. You know, being part of the organization, just because it was something that he was um, excited about, passionate about. So when he applied for a position, I mean, it could be distributing peanuts in the stands. He said he wanted to be second base. Well, they hired him immediately. I'll tell you how that happened. Dan, I would like your take on the hidden jobs situation. Are there really jobs that are in the hidden market? How do you determine your own skills? How much your own skills are really worth? In the open market. Well, that's pretty easy to do. I'll tell you how to do that. Dan, if I printed a book with a quotation attributed to the wrong person, how can I correct it? It's already in print. Well, it's not as big a deal as what you might think, really. What equipment software does it require to record my own reading? And Dan, how does one negotiate time off without coming across as one of those types of people when they're being offered a job? We'll cover that and more in today's edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Here's a quotation for us. This comes from A.W. Tozer. He's an old theologian. Perhaps it takes a purer faith to praise God for unrealized blessings than for those we once enjoyed or those we enjoy now. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought back to the things that you thought you wanted and now, with a little more life perspective, you realize how ridiculous it would have been if you had actually gotten what you thought you wanted. You know, when I was 13, they came out with the Corvette Stingray. 
And I knew that was my only goal in life would be to get a Corvette Stingray. You know what my biggest fear was? I mean, I was only 13 at the time. My biggest fear as I started, the years started going by, my biggest fear was that my desire would change. How ridiculous is that? My fear was that my desire would change, that I would decide I didn't really care about having a Corvette Stingray before I would be able to you know, actually have one. Well, that's kind of a ridiculous circular thinking. I ultimately did get a Corvette Stingray, and, and frankly, by the time I got it, I didn't. it wasn't nearly as exciting as I had envisioned when I was a little kid. Well, you, you know the drill. Remember this remember this Garth Brooks song? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. And just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts well you know that's pretty typical isn't it we look back and think boy what if i would have gotten what i really wanted how would my life have turned out differently than what it has well tim from columbus ohio says dan i've played piano since third grade love working with my hands so being a piano tuner marries two of my great loves in a way that would truly be satisfying to me however i'm having real problems with my transition plan Currently working at a contract IT job requiring nine hours of time a day, leaving few precious hours each weekday and the full weekend to start this new venture. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions? Is it a matter that during this transition period, I'm going to have to just suck it up and accept the fact there won't be time to make deposits in all the seven areas of life? My IT contract expires in May of 2012. At what point in the transition can I be reasonably sure that this new venture will be successful given the limited time I'll be able to dedicate to it. Now, let me read another question here that relates to it as well. This comes from Emily in Worcester, Massachusetts. Emily says, I've been trying to run a small online retail business for the past six years. My website is theotherscene.com and I sell handmade gothic jewelry, hair falls, accessories that I create. I'm visually impaired and have been on disability for years until taking a part-time job six months ago. I'm running into a dilemma. I need the money from the job to put into building my company, but the job I'm at is so frustrating that it takes all my creative energy. I could go back on disability, but that does not allow any extra finances to build my shop. I'd love to build my, make my company full-time, quit my part-time job, but I'm unsure how to actually grow my company to be self-supporting. Thanks for your time for the community at 48days.net and your podcast. All right. So we've got questions from Tim in Columbus, Ohio, Emily, in Worcester, Massachusetts, the same thing. They've got sideline businesses, but they have real jobs as well. How do you make that transition? Here's my formula for that. Here are the general guidelines for that. I think that you need to be able to see a complete transition within 180 days. That's six months. Otherwise, it is going to start draining from the success that you'll have in other areas of your life. If you're working nine hours a day and you're also building a part-time business, you're going to be sacrificing either in physical well-being, you know, relationships, family, social, spiritual, something else is going to be suffering. We know that. So you want to make that as short as possible. I mean, I would ideally like to see 90 days, but let's say that between 90 and 100, 
180 days. So three to six months, you ought to be able to see a transition. If you can't see that much potential in your sideline business, that you really can go full-time within six months, then I question, you know, is it maybe just a hobby where you ought to spend four or five hours a week working on it? But if you really think it has a potential, you ought to be able to make a complete transition in that period of time. Now, during that period of time, you may have to suck it up like Tim asked and, and not be investing time in some other areas of life that really are important, but you're making a transition. So yeah, there's going to have to be some sacrifices there, but it can't be something that is just ongoing and goes on forever. Now we just, this last weekend had a concert here at the sanctuary in Franklin, Tennessee, Ted Yoder, who's the 2010 national champion hammered dulcimer player was here. Now, Ted and his family were in town. They were in Nashville. They live up in Indiana, up near Chicago, really. But they were in town for the National Bible Bee here in Nashville. So Ted, his wife Donna, their six children were all here in town, stayed here at the sanctuary during that period of time. We had a blast together, but then had Ted give us, uh, bless us with a concert on Saturday night. We invited 40 select musicians from here in Nashville. Obviously we have a lot of musicians and we just handpicked some people we knew that would appreciate his level of talent. Now, Ted was working as a flooring installer. I mean, laying hardwood floor, carpet, those kind of things, tile. And he had this dream three years ago. He came down to the sanctuary for one of our business building seminars, brought his hammered dulcimer with it with him and shared with us that, you know, that was really his dream, but he didn't know how that was going to work. He's got a big family. He's got to support them. Boom, boom, boom. How could he take something as odd and unusual as the hammered dulcimer and really turn it into full-time income? But he really determined that's what he wanted to do. He determined he wanted to get to the point where he would do nothing but play and he could play at a lot of different venues, which he does. He could produce CDs, which he does. He could add singing to it, which he does. He could uh, speak and have the Hammer, Hammer Dulcimer just be part of his speaking presentation, which he does. But anyway, that time came a little quicker than he anticipated. He and his wife committed to a timeline, and it was going to be about a year and a half out where he was going to build and build over that period of time. Well, as happens often, when you really get clear about where you're going, your enthusiasm about what you're doing currently starts to wane, starts to diminish. Well, that happened. His enthusiasm about the current work that he was doing, it was pretty obvious that wasn't his passion anymore. He was doing it just for a paycheck. And guess what? He got fired. I mean, that, that's not uncommon at all to have that happen. And he got fired and it was about a year ahead of schedule for when he thought he would be able to make the full-time switch, but he got fired. And then the question was, does he go back out and find another job, which is really going to slow down the process or does he just go for it? And he decided he's just going to go for it. I mean, that very first month when he got fired, you know, one of the things he did, like the day after he got fired was go out and he knocked on the door of a couple retirement centers. He got paying gigs at two retirement centers, the two he knocked on, they both said, yes, come on in and we'll pay you to do that. Come in and play the hammered dulcimer for the residents there. How cool is that? But the very first month when he thought they would absolutely be broke and not be able to pay the rent, he brought in over $7,000. So part of it is it kind of speaks to what happens to your level of enthusiasm. If the commitment goes up, 
if you have a safety net where, yeah, you got a real job and you just try to build it on the side, sometimes building your passion, what you think is your passion on the side takes a very long time. But if you ump up the ante some up the stakes that are required, it's amazing how somebody can all of a sudden take their little sideline business and make it happen. Now, Tim, with your question about piano tuning, I mean, the, the number of pianos in homes in America is just astounding. I mean, it's like 70% of the people have a piano at some ridiculous number. No, I'm not sure that that's accurate, but it is very, very high. The prospects out there are limitless. So if you really were focused, if you went into a neighborhood, we used to live in a community here in Franklin, Tennessee, that has 433 homes in the, in that one little development. I mean, if you just went to those homes, told them what you're doing, I would venture to guess that you would fill your schedule immediately that you just do it. So I think it has to do with the intensity. It's like, if I know that if I'm going to go out here and I'm going to knock on doors and I'm selling vacuum cleaners, let's say that I know that one out of 23, if I knock on 23 doors, somebody's going to buy one. Well, then I can choose to knock on one door a day. So it's going to take me 23 days to do that. Or I can go out this afternoon and knock on 23 doors and I'm going to find the one door that's going to welcome me and buy that vacuum cleaner and make me a thousand bucks. What you're confronted with here, both you and Emily, is somewhat that same thing. You determine in advance what it's going to take to really be successful. What level of activity is it going to take to create the full-time income for you? And once you determine that, then you may decide to do that, to quit your job and do that in 30 days rather than letting it grow slowly over a long period of time. And I think it's very doable. Well, again, you're listening to Dan Miller and 48 Days Online Radio. Incidentally, if you've got a question that you'd like for me to address here in the podcast, I'd be delighted to do that. Just go to 48days.com, click on the podcast link, and you'll come up with a little box there that allows you to put in your question. Well, Mike from Canyon, Texas says, I gave a copy of 48 Days to a friend of mine who just became unemployed, ordered another book for myself. I'm trying to mesh my calling, skills, passions, and dreams with a variety of home improvement options to help provide consistent work and income. I'm developing a home improvement business model that would specialize in tile, automatic sliding gates, and a proprietary means of engraving phrases or scripture on the walls. In your opinion, is having a composite job plan a wise option? I'm trying to determine the best means for marketing the unique mix of specializations. Should I have separate Facebook or website business cards for each? Lastly, what medium of marketing would best serve my marketing budget? Look forward to completing my 48 days very soon. Thanks, Mike. I would recommend with what you're talking about, you're talking about home improvement things and even got some unique things in there, like a process for engraving phrases or scripture on the walls. We have several of those in our house. Incidentally, I love those where you have something inspirational and have the quotation on the wall in your house. When our kids were small, when, when Jared was small, had his bedroom downstairs in kind of a separate area of the house. It was like a downstairs bonus room really, but had his own bathroom there. We painted the walls in the bathroom white and then allowed Jared and all of his friends to write anything they wanted to in the walls. So it was a spectacular display with all these unique quotations that were meaningful, you know, to 12 and 13 year old kids at the time. And I, I cringed. Ultimately, we wanted to sell that house. And I hated having to paint over that as we got the house ready for sale because there was so much meaning 
you know, at significant points in his life and the life of his friends that were on the walls. Well, Joanna and I do some of that, not to the same scale and not as informally, but we have some beautiful quotes that are on the walls in our own home that speak to what we think our home was all about. Now, that being said, I think you ought to keep those things all under one umbrella. I think it's very difficult to have a whole bunch of different businesses that you run a different website that you're managing, wearing different hats. Just make them all work together. Go to, go to the 48 days resources. There's a drop down on 48 days worksheets. We just put up there the Venn diagram that shows the business model that I use for 48 days. So it shows seven distinctly different things that we do, but they're all connected and you'll see with the overlapping circles, how that makes sense conceptually. So I consider them to be all tied together where activity in any one fuels activity in the others that it touches. I think you ought to do that. If you have separate businesses, it'll be too diverse and you'll be mediocre in all of them. And incidentally, the best source of referral of marketing for your new business is referrals. Do great work. Ask your customers for referrals. Second to that would be in the kind of thing you're talking about. Home improvements would be Angie's list. Make sure you're on there. Chris from Topeka, Kansas says, I heard you say it was a good idea to learn in the way that fits you best when referring to written word books versus spoken word audiobooks. Then I was disappointed to see that 48 days to the work you love is not available on audible.com. Can you recommend somewhere I can get that in audio for download? Unfortunately, Chris, that's a publisher issue. You can get the physical audio CDs from us here for 48 days to the work you love, download them yourself, but there is no place to just go and download directly. That is a publisher issue. Unfortunately, publishers don't always keep up with current technology. Publishers are mortified at the idea of having digital files floating around out there in their books. You know, what if somebody shares it with 300 of their friends? Well, frankly, I hope they do, but that's not the way publishers think. So yeah, that's, and that's out of my control. When I have a publishing deal, then the publishing rights for that content, both print and audio are controlled by the publisher. So beg we might, and certainly publishers are open to listening to things we have as input, but that that's never been done. No more dreaded Mondays is available like that. Anything that we've done in house here, we have thousands of things that are available with audio download directly, but nope. A one original product, 48 days to the work you love is not unfortunately Jake from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Dan, I love your podcast. Listening to your story about the resume and the coffee bags. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about that. Somebody wrote in to me and showed me a picture of how he put his resume on coffee bags and then distributed them and how immediately that got him interviews and job offers. Uh, Jake here is talking about, he says, listening to that story reminded me of how my brother landed a job with the Kansas City Royals a few years ago. As a huge baseball fan, he didn't have a job preference. He just really wanted to work for the Royals. So in the job application where it asked which position he was applying for, he wrote second base. He was immediately interviewed and offered a job within guest services. They told him that a sense of humor was definitely an asset when working directly with a guest at the stadium. You know, it sounds like an old... Seinfeld rerun. Remember, you know, George's obsession about working with the New York Yankees and all the things he did to get into work with them, work directly with George Steinbrenner, hilarious stuff. That, that's a cool story, you know, to just put in, I mean, getting a job does not have to be just some intellectual, highbrow, cerebral thing. You can have a lot of fun with it. 
And if you're a creative person, man, you can have a lot of fun being creative with the kind of things that you do, even in the interactions with somebody who's interviewing you. I mean, one of the things that interviewers are always asking themselves when they're thinking, do I want this person on our team is, is this person fun to be around? So if you're a fun person and you show that in humor, I mean, one of the biggest things you can do to increase your opportunity to get job offers is to smile more, show more energy in your interview and to smile more. People like people on their team who are smiling. So using a little humor is very, very legit. Malie from uh, Palm Harbor, Florida says, Dan, I'd like your take on the hidden job situation. I have, I've had a job search ministry for the past 10 years and with our current 9.7% unemployment rate, finding those hidden jobs has become more critical than ever before. We coach our people on how to find those hidden jobs and the network, 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 and so on. He goes on, talks about, I hear from our presidential candidates. They all want to create more jobs, but no one has a plan. I feel strongly that the jobs are out there right now. We have to put every strategy to work in order to locate these jobs. Yeah. All right. Here's what I say. Estimates are that 87% of the real jobs out there are never advertised anywhere. They're in what we call the hidden job market. But here's how this works. We know that, well, 52.8% of the companies out there have one to four employees. When we go up to even to 99 employees, you know, 97.4% of the companies out there have fewer than 99, have fewer than 99 employees. What that means is that they don't get the high visibility. You know, everybody goes to apply to Microsoft and Google and Yahoo and Boeing and IBM and McDonald's and so on because they're such big monolithic companies, but that's not where the real growth opportunities are. It's in the small companies that are more streamlined. So you have to be creative to go find those smaller opportunities. Grab copies of your local business journal. Here in Nashville, we have the Nashville Business Journal. You know, grab something like that to get a sense of where activity has taken place in small companies that maybe just got some new venture capital put in. Contact those, ask, go out and knock on doors, see what companies are actually located in a five mile radius from where you live. Get a chamber of commerce directory. Those are great companies to approach, approach the companies that you want to work with. Don't wait until you see, gee, there's going to be a job fair and here's a company that needs to hire 30 people. Those are really rare. You're talking about a very tiny segment of the job market. If you wait for those kind of things, you stay in the driver's seat, you identify the companies, you find those companies in the 97% category that you're, you were, you're never going to see them advertising jobs. The other thing is talk to people who are working at companies where you'd like to work. I mean, Dave Ramsey at his company has a policy. I did devotions over there recently. And at the beginning of that weekly meeting, they award, they have $250 cash in an envelope to anybody who recommended somebody who's now been on the team for 90 days. So they reward people internally. What do you think their greatest recruiting tool is? It's those people recruiting friends to work where they work. Well, just to note, you're listening to Dan Miller in the 48 Days Online Radio Show. And again, if you've got a question, you can go to the 48days.com website, click on podcast and offer up your question there. I'd be glad to consider that in an upcoming show. Well, Jim from Indianapolis says, what would be your input into finding out how much your skills are really worth in the open market? 
All the websites out there to me always seem to way overstate how much I should be making. I make about 40,000 a year and websites say I should be making 55 a year. Being off by $15,000 seems to be way off for me. I think a lot of that might be people who take those job salary surveys say they make more than they really do. How would you tell someone how they can find out how much their skills are really worth to find out if they're overpaid, underpaid, or just right? Great question, Jim. Now, there's a whole lot of sites out there that can help you determine where you should be. I mean, there are sites that will help you compute real estate values, moving expenses. I mean, things like homefair.com has a salary calculator there. You can go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics salary predictor, statsbls.gov. I mean, they have salary trends there. You can go to jobstar.org, salary.com, careerbabe has a salary calculator. Uh, the Wall Street Journal career section has a salary calculator. I mean, they all have those. Those are going to be averages and they may be overstated. But keep in mind also, when we talk about an administrative assistant, I mean, what is an administrative assistant paid well, I know administrative assistants who are paid $22,000 and I know administrative assistants who are paid $90,000. Same job descriptor title, but very, very different. So we know there's a broad range. If you are making 40,000 and all the predictors for salary say that you ought to be at 55, then the question should be, okay, are you, why are you at the lower end? Why are you at the lower range? Are you doing things that make you exceptional even in that job title? Now, the other thing here, and I'll leave it with this, the only real way to know your market value is to do a job search. So if you do a job search, you, you identify those 30 to 40 companies where you think there'd be a good match for the skills that you have. You do a professional job search. You're going to have interviews. Guess what? You're going to really find out what you're worth. So if you've been working at the same place for 20 years and you're making $40,000 and you think you're undercompensated, do a job search. You can do that without jeopardizing the job you're currently in. If you get offers at 55 and 65, then you can say, okay, I probably am undercompensated. And you may be able to go back to your current employer and negotiate something significant in a raise. If not, you certainly have the option knowing that you've done a job search. You have the option to go ahead and change. That's the way to really find out what you're worth. I mean, it really will. I mean, that's the ultimate test. Uh, I mean, if you, if you have a car that you think is worth $10,000 because it says on Kelly blue book that it's worth $10,000. I mean, that's smoke and mirrors. It's pie in the sky until you advertise it. You see if somebody's really going to pay you $10,000 for it. It doesn't mean anything until you match up a buyer with your car. Same thing is true in terms of identifying your worth. You have to find somebody who's willing to pay you more before you can claim accurately that you're undercompensated now. Osai from Charlotte, North Carolina says, uh, Dan, I recently wrote a book. Impossible is stupid. And that's the website. Impossible is stupid.com. I have some quotes in it, including yours. And at the last minute, I found out that a quote I had attributed to a friend was actually a quote by someone else. The good news is that I was able to make changes before it was published. My question is, if I had not been able to make the changes on time, how would I have fixed the issue? Would I need to contact the person who originally made the quote and apologize or take the book off the shelves or, or, or what? Thanks for all you do. Well, 
one thing here, this is a little pet peeve of mine, and you'll find this with editors. You really aren't talking about a quote. You're talking about a quotation. A quote is when I have guys come out here and give me a bid on my roof to put a new roof on. That's a quote. It's like an estimate. A quotation is where you're repeating what somebody said. Small deal. I know we use that all the time where you have favorite quotes and it's uh, quotations. But, all right, quotations are never written in stone. I mean, well, well, I should take that back unless it's the Ten Commandments. All right. That, those are the only quotations I know that are written in stone. Beyond that, they're extremely fluid. I've often done contests. When I was on a live radio, I used to do contests. You know, tell me who said this and I'll give you a free book package. Find a job you love and you'll never go to work again. All right. Now I know some of you are going to have an answer real quick. Who said that? Who is that a quotation of find a job you love and you'll never go to work again. Well, you, you should know that that's been attributed to Confucius, Henry Ford, and J.C. Penney. They've all been listed as the originators of that one quotation. Here's the deal. There, there's, well, let me read you a Mark Twain quotation. And this really is from Mark Twain who said, there is no such thing as a new idea. It's impossible. We just take a lot of old ideas, put them into a sort of mental kaleidoscope. We give them a turn. They create new and curious combinations. We keep turning, making new patterns, but they're the same old pieces of glass that have been in use throughout all the years. I love that quotation from Mark Twain. There's no such thing as a new idea. Now here's what happens. I see things out there in print that quote me as having said something that I got from Brian Tracy or Zig Ziglar or Dennis Whaley, because people heard me say it in a speech or presentation. Somehow they attributed it to me. The bottom line for your question, you've got something in a book. I've had things in books that have been attributed to the wrong person where it's Emerson instead of Thoreau or vice versa or whatever. It's really not that big a deal. I mean, people pride themselves in finding what they think is a mistake and let you know, but it's not a, it's not the end of the world. If you attributed a quotation to somebody improperly, it really is not the, those quotations come and go. Don't lose any sleep over it. Try to be as accurate as you can. I've got a little book right now that we are republishing. It's called The Little Book of Big Ideas, and it's full of quotations having to do with creativity. And I'm finding that the original author of that was extremely sloppy. He has, whenever he didn't know, apparently, he just put anonymous. Well, a lot of them are easy to identify where the quotation really came from. So we're going through and cleaning that up and uh, trying to be as accurate as possible. But when we have a book, full of hundreds of quotations. We aren't worried about having one that's attributed to the wrong person. It's just not, not a life and death kind of thing at all. Billy from Atlanta says, Dan, is there a way I can read something then record what I read so that I can make an MP3 or podcast of what I read? What equipment or software does that require? This is not to make money. This is a way for me to learn a complicated subject tax. I have a lot of tax books that I can motivate. I can't motivate myself to read, but if I could record myself reading them and then play them over and over what I read, I think I could benefit from that. Thank you. I love your show. Listen to regularly. Well, thanks for your question. Now here, the easiest way to record yourself reading and then listen to it back is to use audacity. Just go to audacity.com. A U D A C I T Y.com. It's a free download 
and it's a recording program. If you have a laptop, you probably have a built-in recorder. So you're really set to go. You don't have to buy anything. I mean, if you want to go to Radio Shack and buy a little $19 lapel mic that you clip onto your collar and plug it inside of your computer, you can do that. But either way, I mean, having a mic is no big deal. Audacity, free download. You can record anything you want to there. You can clean it up. You can, you can come back in and uh, put things in there to motivate yourself if you want to. Um, things like this. <laughs> Maybe this will motivate you. You can just add this in. That'll motivate you to be listening to whatever you recorded. But anyway, you can record through Audacity and you can create from that an MP3 and you just come back to that again and again and listen to that. That's the easiest way to do it. Not a big deal. Well enough of if I had a million dollars. This is Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online radio show. And if you've got a question, you can go to the 48days.com site, click on podcast, shoot me a question, or just shoot a question to askdan at 48days.com. Jen from Minnesota says, Dan, how does one negotiate time off without coming off as one of those types of people when they're offered a job? I have a friend who wants to go back into the corporate world for a variety of reasons. Um, he runs his, but he runs a business and he, would love that he loves and wants to keep doing it on the side during his off hours. He knows not to bring up salary, et cetera, during the interview and to wait until the job is offered. You touch upon this in your book, but it's nice to hear in your own words, how you would phrase this as he wants to be careful not to be a turnoff and have them reconsider their decision. All right. Now you frame that really well, Jen, because you would not discuss extra time off until you were offered a position. So you don't go in and say, gee, I really am out here looking for a job. I hope you have something. Incidentally, I only want to work four days a week. But after you've gone through the interviewing process, they've narrowed down. They have determined you are the one they want. Then you can negotiate. And this is not being about about being underhanded or somehow sneaking up on them. No, then you can discuss. Now, now. Based on my understanding of the responsibilities here, you know, I would be required to produce this kind of work. It would seem to me that would be, it would be easy for me to do that from my own home computer, not taking up office space, using up utilities from you. Would it be reasonable if I worked from home three days a week? That's a very reasonable way to approach that and a very reasonable time to address that issue. You could also say, Now, in order to be effective here, would it be unreasonable if I put in four 10 hour days? So again, so you're not even, you're not asking for unreasonable time off or anything. You're just saying, boom, you know, how can I frame my work so that it maximizes what I'm able to give to you, but I do it in this way. If you really wanted more time off, you can say, now I had anticipated this job being in the $75,000 category. You know, you're offering me 72. I can live with that if I'm allowed to have three weeks vacation starting with year number one rather than two. I mean, those things are not big deal breakers. Those are just part of reasonable negotiating. You can certainly do that. And if you frame it right, where you show your commitment to helping the company to maximize your contribution there, it will not be seen as somebody who's just a slacker or one of those kind of people. Great question, Jen. Ryan says, Dan, six years ago, I used to sell DVDs. You know what? Let me 
skip that one. I'm going to skip that one for right now. We got a couple other that are similar. Brian from Cincinnati says, thanks for all your helpful info and inspiration. A while back, you mentioned the idea of a pet food delivery business. It struck a chord with me and I've been thinking about it ever since. Can you shed some more light on how to work that business specifically? I'm wondering where and how to get dog and cat food at wholesale prices. Do you think having a selection of brands and types is important at first or is a solid brand of adult food enough to start out with? I'd rather not do a franchise as I'd be working with a shoestring budget. Any tips or helpful info would be much appreciated. This is a big area, mobile pet food delivery. Now I just Googled mobile pet food delivery. I got 77,500,000 results. So this is not a small issue. There's a whole lot of people that are in this space. I mean, we know that if you put in mobile pet food delivery franchise, you still get over a million, one and a half million responses. Now, part of this is we know 62% of us households own a pet. I mean, that equates to about 71 and a half million homes. At this point, Americans alone are spending almost $46 billion on their pets annually. $46 billion. I mean, that's more than are spent on toys. That's more than is spent on nutritional supplements, which is a mind-boggling statistic. I mean, we know how big we are on nutritional supplements. People spend more on their pets than on that. So there's a whole lot of activity out there. Here's what you need to do. And this is just due diligence. You want to start a business. So the first thing you do is what we call due diligence, D U E diligence. It's checking out what's already being done. If I'm going to open up a ice cream parlor in Franklin, Tennessee, the first thing I'm going to do is recognize there's already a Baskin Robbins. There's a Ben and Jerry's. There's a sweet CC's. I better have my ducks in a row. I better understand what they're doing well and how I'm going to offer something different or in addition to or added value from what they're already doing. So that's what you do here. You determine what's already being done in your community in terms of mobile pet food delivery, but then get aggressive and you can do this research just online because there are so many franchises and business opportunities that deal with this and wholesalers of pet food So you just get information from all of those. The franchise, the franchisors are required to give you their franchise offering circular. That'll give you a whole lot of information about how those franchises are structured. You may be surprised incidentally at how inexpensive some of those franchises are. I mean, there are franchises out there in some areas for two or $3,000. And what that does gives you a proven path to run on. So it's a, a proven track A franchise typically is going to give you more credibility and a faster start. So they're going to take care of a whole lot of issues. But beyond that, then you can go to business opportunities. Business opportunities are typically lower dollars to start with, but they still give you a proven track to run on. So you may pay a thousand dollars and they give you manuals and audio CDs on how to start a mobile pet food delivery business. So I would encourage you to explore those if you don't, in fact, do one of those, because I think that's a reasonable way to start. But do your homework and then you can determine what's going to be, what's your unique selling proposition that you're going to offer in that space in your community. Talk to people who are already doing it. I mean, I've always done that when I'm going to start a new business. I go to the people already doing it. You'd be surprised the information you can get from people who are already doing it. 
talk to prospective customers, spend a morning, go out and knock on 50 doors in your neighborhood and say, if I were doing this, would you be a prospective customers? So you do all those things in advance. So you really map out the reality of your business and then you can hit the road running. And the idea is it's, it's a very legitimate business and I encourage you to move ahead, explore it, make it something that'll work for you and have fun with it. Vana says, Dan, I started a small business for my art, but I'm thinking I may have jumped the gun in getting a license and establishing the business. I've not sold any of my work or prints of my work since I obtained my license in August. I have one sale of an original coming up. It'll be my first sale. Should I just drop my license and just operate as a DBA doing business as, and just claim any money I do make as extra income when filling, when filing my personal taxes, or should I maintain my license? Uh, just to clarify that I'm not discouraged in the lack of sales. Just want to know which is the best option for an artist that is not yet known. Well, what you need, there's no harm in having already gotten your business license. And I wouldn't, I would not undo that. Just keep that. I mean, it's a small detail. I mean, to get a business license from your local County clerk is usually about $20 for the year. And it does help you feel like you really have a business. I mean, you can produce cards with that on. You can go to the bank and open up a business account. Most banks do require that you have a business license to open an account in that name. So it's a little more professional down the road than just a DBA. No, I encourage you, having already done it, there's no reason to undo it. Just continue to operate with that and continue to expect that you are going to ramp it up and that you're going to have big success coming as an artist to selling your work. Now, here's an interesting one. This comes from Kevin in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Dan, I'm a recent college graduate. What should I do when I do not want to use my degree? I graduated in aviation, so I have my commercial pilot's license. My family and wife mean more to me than being away from home four or five days out of the week. I have a passion for aviation, but jobs that are local, such as flight instructing, are impossible to make a living from. Thanks for the advice love the work you do. Well, thanks for your comments and question, Kevin. Boy, is that a common occurrence. I mean, I ask, I ask people every week, how did you choose your college degree? And it's very rare that there was a whole lot of forethought put into it. Now, if somebody wants to go to law school, yeah, they're going to get a degree in economics or political science or something. But for more than not, it's somebody who got to be a junior in college and then said, what's the quickest way out of here? So they get degrees in, you know, in business in mass communications in general studies in university studies. I mean, we're golly, you couldn't even choose something. So having a college degree in any particular area does not force you into a tiny tunnel from which there's no escape, not a chance, never does that. Chances are, even if your focus has been aviation, that you have a BS or a BA, probably a BS. So just promote that. You don't even need to put the area of concentration. Just put that you graduated and you have a degree. That way it opens you up to a broad array of things where then in your resume, you want to identify real clearly what are the two or three highest areas of competence that you have. So you do that, you'll be right on track. You won't be pigeonholed because you have a degree that focused on aviation. Great question. Now I see people who are way down the career path. I see the 43 year old who has a, a DDS behind his name, went to dental school as a dentist and decides that he hates dentistry. What's he going to do? 
we remove that. I mean, it's not deceitful or misrepresenting to remove a degree on your resume when you don't want to emphasize that particular area of study. So you can remove that. Not a big deal. Position yourself differently. Be in the game. I mean, I worked with an attorney not too long ago who was licensed in California, but was not licensed in Tennessee, where she now lives. Well, having the JD on her resume then was very confusing because everywhere she went, they viewed her as a licensed attorney and she was not. And she didn't really have any desire to continue in that field anyway. So why would we have that on there? Remove it. Just put the things, I mean, get degrees. I mean, you can go get degrees and all kinds of things. You can get your yoga license and you're not forced then to have that on your resume. If in fact it has nothing to do with where you want to go. Keep in mind, a resume is a sales brochure for where you want to go, not just a chronological listing of what you've done. So make sure you use it as such. Jim from Indianapolis says, Dan, in your experience, how does someone go from good to great? He says, good to great. That's in the Tony, the tiger voice. Great. Of course. Well, he says, I want to make that move, but seem to stumble a lot. I consider myself good at what I do, but not great. Does it just come with time and experience or is there something else? Might someone need a spirit, passion, or flame for their field of work? Like a prenatural ability to understand a given subject. Wow. All right. Here's the deal. Now, when you use the terms good to great, where I'm obviously going to think about Jim Collins book that was titled that good, good to great. How do you go from good to great? Now, Jim talks about the hedgehog concept in his book, good to great. And here's what that means. He says, there's an old Greek parable that says the Fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. So he goes on to develop it as such. And he says, if you want to be great, you need to be a hedgehog, not a Fox, a Fox. You get the mental image just runs after anything that shows up out there. Boom. After this, after that is a hedgehog. That's what they do. But I mean, a Fox, a Fox, I'm sorry. I got the terms mixed up. The Fox just goes after anything, you know, chases anything, chases rabbits and so on. But the hedgehog does one thing very slow, methodically, boom, boom, boom. And, you know, every day the fox sits by the side of the trail, sees the hedgehog come along and think, I'm going to get that sucker today. So he pounces out and the hedgehog thinks, ah, whatever. He rolls up in a ball, has these prickly things that come out. The fox isn't going to get in. He doesn't, there's no way to grab it, no way to eat it. Pretty soon he gets tired of playing that game and he goes off and chases something else. The hedgehog thinks, you know, when is he ever going to learn this lesson? When is he going to realize that I'm always going to win this game? Well, that's kind of what hedgehogs do. So, and that's how you go from good to great. Good people who are good tend to do a whole lot of different things. People who are great identify what is that one thing that I do so well, perhaps better than anybody else on the face of the earth. That's how they get to be great. And that's exactly what you need to do. Jim is to do that. Identify Instead of don't be a jack of all trade, master of none. No, zero in. What are the one or two things that you do where you do it with such excellence that people are going to stand back and take note? It's extraordinary. Extraordinary what it is that you do. 
You know, be uncommonly good, undeniably good. That's an old Steve Martin phrase. Be so good in something that people can't ignore you. That's what people do to move into great. Well, we're right on top. I've got some other great questions here. We'll save those for another day. Hey, this has been Dan Miller and 48 Days Online Radio. I love this particular time of the week when I'm able to pull questions that you all, the listeners, submit. When you send in the things that are challenging you, things that intrigue you, they're questions that go, that are greater than anything I could possibly dream up. And I trust that pulling those out, discussing them here in this format on the podcast enlightens not only you, but a whole lot of other people who are thinking the same thing. You know, when somebody asks about how can I get a job without focusing on my last degree? Well, that only touches about 98% of the people walking around out there in the face of the earth. You know, we know that five years after graduation, 80% of college graduates are working in something totally unrelated to the college degree. So that's a real common question. Those are the kind of things that I try to pull out as we just work through this together. Thanks for being part of this community. Jump on to 48days.net. There's a whole lot of people on there that are excitedly sharing their ideas, the things where they're going to be hedgehogs instead of fox that chase everything. People who are becoming great in one particular thing. I know that you're part of this growing group of people who are finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week. This is Dan Miller, 48 Days Online Radio.